Welcome back to the Big Picture podcast series. This week, we're joined by Deborah Gilshan from the 100% Club. Deborah, we are ready for you. Thanks, Mazia. Um, and good afternoon, everybody. And uh, thank you to the University of Greenwich for the opportunity to uh, present today as part of their big picture seminar series. I have called my presentation the mathematics of diversity because diversity has many mathematical aspects to it. The achievement of targets to increase the representation of marginalized groups is key to progress, but meeting targets is just the beginning. The traditional case for business case for diversity is based on proving the positive impact on a company's bottom line. But why do we need to have such and seek such proof? There is a mathematical equation to prove the value of cognitive diversity in team decision making. So how can we use the mathematics of diversity to change the frame of reference and why it matters? And what role do financial markets and investors play in driving change in companies and in wider society to address inequalities? Why is diversity critical to the transition to a low carbon economy? These are just some of the areas I will seek to cover in my presentation today. As Mazia said, please do ask questions um, throughout and I will try and answer as many of them as possible at the end. And uh, my colleague Chloe at the University of Greenwich will be changing the slides through for me. So uh, Chloe, if you could move to the first slide, which is the introductory slide. So a bit of an introduction to myself. I've worked in finance for over 20 years, much of which, much of which has been within large institutional investors. So uh, investors who invest people's pensions and savings to give them returns both now and in the future when they retire. I specialize in sustainability and the integration of environmental, social and governance factors, what are known as ESG factors, as well as shareholder engagement on these issues. I have extensive experience, experience in holding companies to account and engaging globally with board directors, senior executives, regulators and investors on ESG issues such as diversity, executive pay, board structure and succession planning. It's such an interesting and vitally important part of finance. I've worked for three large investors. I started my career in Manchester at the Cooperative Insurance Society, whose investment arm was a pioneer of ethical investing. I spent nine years with the pension fund for the UK railway industry. And then I worked for Aberdeen Standard Investments, the global asset manager. And I now advise a range of clients on the integration of sustainability factors into investment processes, on how they engage with companies in which they invest and on diversity. I've had the privilege of being in this space for over 20 years, and it is a privilege because investors are ultimately acting on behalf of other people. They are stewarding other people's capital and looking after people's pensions and savings. As Mazia said, I also run a network dedicated to gender equality and empowering women in finance called the 100% Club. This is my contribution to addressing gender imbalance in finance and I set it up in 2011 
because I believe in the power of networking for career advancement and professional development. But I also recognise the important role that advocacy groups play in addressing inequalities. There's lots of evidence that tells us that one of the main barriers that women and other marginalised groups face is access to networks. And I think it's particularly true within finance, which has a lot of work to do to move away from this idea of it being very male dominated and an old boys network. I'm also an ambassador for the 30% Club, the global initiative to improve the representation of women in companies. I help build the UK investor group of the 30% Club using the power of investor capital to engage with corporate boards on diversity, including addressing gender imbalances at board level and in senior management teams of large UK listed companies. As Mazia says in introduction as well, I'm a senior advisor to the Women's Societies Alliance, which is an initiative to create equal opportunities in the finance industry for female graduates. I chair the Ethics and Systemic Risk Committee of the International Corporate Governance Network, and one of the areas we look at in our work on systemic risks is inequalities. And there is a real systemic opportunity with diversity and inclusion, and to address it systematically could be really prosperous. I'm also a fellow of ICSA, the Governance Institute, and I was a member of the advisory group for the High Pay Centre's work on CEO pay ratios. And finally, I am the lead author on two publications, one on executive pay, which the Department for Business referenced in 2012 in its consultation to improve the rights of shareholders in UK companies on executive pay. And more recently, a report on diversity with the Institute of Business Ethics, which I will talk more about later. So that's my background and experience. And I would say as well that these comments and views are my own and not um, those of necessarily any organisations that I'm connected to. I wanted to now give some further context to my lecture and to set the scene some more. So Chloe, if you could move to the next slide. So there are four significant shifts going on in finance currently, which are all interrelated. There is a democratisation of finance where the end saver is being given tools to have more of a voice in what is done on their behalf with their money and how they hold their agents to account in the investment chain. And this slide here uh, gives us an idea of what the investment chain looks like from savers and investors on one side through to companies who seek investment from savers and investors on the other. And then the chain of intermediaries in the middle, in the middle and others who contribute to uh, the investment value chain. Three other um, sh uh, shifts that are going on within finance is a shift from a focus on shareholders to a focus on all stakeholders a company is responsible to. The third shift is the acceptance of the importance of what I described earlier as ESG issues, such as climate change across the marketplace as a whole. And then fourthly, there's an expectation of a more assertive and impactful form of what's called investment stewardship and how companies are held to account by their shareholders. So this slide helps me demonstrate the first shift as well, the democratisation of finance. And I'm really passionate about the transformational power of investor capital to make long-term sustainable returns and that the end saver and investor the person on the street, the ordinary saver, is represented and their voices are heard. I'm particularly interested in the role that 
asset managers and asset owners, big pension funds like the one I used to work for. I'm interested in the role that they play in this regard, but I'm also interested in how the end saver on whose behalf investors act has more of a say and more of a voice in how their capital is invested and how they hold their agents to account for what is done on their behalf. Interestingly, a 2019 survey conducted by the Department for International Development highlighted that 68% of UK savers wanted their investments to consider the impact on people and planet alongside financial performance. So I talked about the second shift in finance from what's called shareholder primacy through to stakeholder capitalism. And the quotes that I presented on this slide demonstrate the shift in thinking from the 1970s through to the present day as to how markets are changing and how we're moving towards what's now called stakeholder capitalism. This is a focus away from shareholders being the only party to which companies are primarily accountable to a focus on a wider range of stakeholders, such as employees, customers, suppliers, society more generally, and where the environment is seen as a stakeholder of the company also. These are important and significant shifts as it is now being widely recognized that companies have responsibilities to society that can no longer be ignored. How a company treats its workers and its supply chain matter. It matters how a company manages its environmental footprint and how it supports the transition to a low carbon economy. It matters how non-diverse a company board and workforce is because companies are missing out on talent and are increasing their risk of groupthink by not harnessing the advantages of diversity in the workplace. This shift in the role that financial markets plays is also being driven through a much more holistic consideration of environmental, social and governance issues as sources of investment risk and return. This evolution was already happening, but has been accelerated significantly because of the pandemic. In my 20 years in this space, I have never seen so much activity and interest in the space of ESG investing and investment stewardship. So this slide gives some examples of what ESG issues are. This is quite high level, but what is important is that these factors manifest themselves within companies, but also at a market level through systemic risks such as climate change and inequalities. How a company acts matters for that company, but also the reputation of business as a whole. And all companies have a part to play in being part of the solutions to some of these societal challenges. This increasing recognition of the importance of ESG considerations by companies and their investors has reinforced the view that the social license to operate of companies is critical to long-term value, especially as the pandemic is testing that social license to its core. What is also important is that these issues increasingly apply to all types of companies, not just those listed on public stock markets. There's so much more visibility now through social media and other channels of communications about what companies do and how they behave. The general, company, the general public doesn't see the difference between a private company and a public company. They just see how they act in society. So I think these issues matter for all companies. And I think sophisticated switched on companies understand the value of good long-term relations with their stakeholders and the management of ESG factors and how a company behaves and respects its social license to operate are fundamental to building and maintaining trust in business 
or damaging that trust. The need to consider stakeholders beyond shareholders should now be self-evident to companies and their boards. Diversity is critical to this. Visibility of diverse leaders, the importance of diverse role models and diverse representation are all important for stakeholder relationships. This manifests itself acutely at board level where the board is taken, at the, taken as the outward face of the organisation. And I would argue that companies and boards that have not embraced diversity pre-pandemic face an added layer of homogeneity risk on their boards because they didn't have people with different perspectives and were at risk of making decisions where everyone was looking at things from the same angle. So the fourth significant shift in financial markets is heightened expectations of a more assertive and transparent investment stewardship activities expected from, from investors as they have a huge part to play in how they hold to account companies that they invest in on behalf of savers and inve other investors. I think the role of investment management and how it stewards clients' capital is so fundamental to how capitalism works and how people save and invest. Investment houses need to now demonstrate how they are stewards of companies and, how, and hold companies to account on financial returns, but also on issues such as supply chain management, workforce and board diversity, executive pay and corporate culture. This is a vitally important role that finance plays and how they hold companies to account that they invest in with other people's money. This role is called investment stewardship and it is positioned on the rights that flow to shareholders as investors and in companies. Rights such as the right to elect directors to the company board at the annual general meeting the right to approve the pay structures of the CEO and the right to appoint an auditor. It also is centred around the right, share, the right shareholders have to present their own proposals at the annual meetings of investee companies, to work collaboratively with other shareholders and to call out companies if they are not following best practices or are performing poorly. The power of shareholder voice and holding companies to account is one of the most important roles that finance has not least because it is other people's money that they are investing. In this way, investment stewardship is key to demonstrating the social utility of finance. This also matters because finance faces a huge trust deficit. According to the 2021 Edelman Trust Barometer, which measures public sentiment and trust in sectors and institutions, financial services is the least trusted sector and it has been the least trusted sector since at least 2012. In rebuilding trust, there is a really important role that asset managers and asset owners and pension funds have to demonstrate their function and make a more coherent case for their contribution to the real economy. Rebuilding trust matters not only from a hypothetical perspective. There is lots of evidence from both a micro and a macro level that rebuilding trust does increase value creation. Addressing this trust deficit is vital and diversity also plays a huge part in this because finance itself is very challenged on diversity, which I will talk about more later. So this all comes together as investors acting in the best interest of their clients is also about a visibility to their investment stewardship work, like going to the annual general meeting of a company and escalating their concerns. In my career, I've attended about 25 annual meetings and made statements at most of them. 
There is a lot of private dialogue that goes on between shareholders and companies, but investment stewardship has to be more than just private dialogue. And the interconnectivity of stakeholders is also important. The customer is the saver, the current pensioner, the future pensioner and the employee. These things are not discrete and they're not mutually exclusive. And we need to start thinking much more holistically so that a shareholder acting in the interests of its clients is not seen as either or, but rather that it has positive wider ramifications. There is much more recognition that the societal expectations on shareholders as stewards of capital are being debated and they are quite rightly being held to account. So this slide shows some of the global initiatives that are also driving investor behaviour as more and more investors are recognising the importance of ESG and the role they play as stewards of capital. Organisations such as the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment and the International Corporate Governance Network are testament to that. The UNPRI is a global investor membership organisation with over 3,000 members globally and with collective assets under management of 103 trillion US dollars. The ICGN is an organisation led by investors with 54 trillion in asset ed trillion dollars in assets under management and its mission is to promote effective standards of corporate governance and investor stewardship to advance efficient markets and sustainable economies worldwide. And there is also the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are the blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. They address the global challenges the world faces, including poverty, inequality, climate change, environmental degradation, peace and justice. So this is the context both for financial services as a sector and its role in the wider economy. And I think these two issues, investment stewardship and diversity, are so key to the social utility of finance and how finance demonstrates that social utility. So having been involved in diversity advocacy since 2011, the pace of change in the past year and the evolving expectations on companies, their investors and society more generally has been unparalleled in my opinion. It is also important to reflect that existing systemic inequalities were already being exposed through movements such as Me Too prior to the pandemic. I spent much of last year researching and writing a paper on diversity for the UK's Institute of Business Ethics. Little did I know what lay ahead in 2020 would bring an urgency to the diversity agenda that I could never have envisaged. So the report called The Ethics of Diversity provides a practical guide as to why diversity matters for boards, companies and their stakeholders. There are important ethical dimensions in the framing of diversity in terms of the questions asked and the solutions presented. The report seeks to provide boards of directors with a framework for understanding these ethical dimensions and addressing them systemically. The report reflects on what has been achieved from the 10 years of sustained efforts in the UK to improve gender diversity and the lessons learned from the multi-stakeholder approach. It looks forward and considers initiatives to improve other dimensions of diversity. Academic and practitioner research on the various proof points for diversity are examined, including the business case and in how board governance can be enhanced and the risk of groupthink lessened through improved diversity. 
The report considers how the COVID-19 pandemic has amplified existing systemic risks related to inequalities and how these have been heightened further by the global focus on racial injustices, all of which have brought a new urgency to the diversity agenda. And this is particularly evident in the role that investment stewardship is increasingly playing in driving change. The IBU report offers guidance on how boards can get ahead of the curve on all dimensions of diversity to achieve more inclusive and successful corporate cultures through strategies that embrace and value diversity of thought and experience. Such strategies can also break down the barriers that all marginalised groups face within and outside organisations. The report concludes with a call to action and a series of 10 recommendations as to how a board of directors can embrace cognitive and experiential diversity and unlock the sustainable business benefits that will flow. I will now talk in more detail about some of the key areas explored in the report. Could we have the next slide, Chloe, please? So my favourite definition of diversity is from a US academic called Professor Scott E. Page who is the Leonard Hurwitz Collegiate Professor of Complex Systems, Political Science and Economics at the University of Michigan. So I think he knows what he's talking about. He's also written some brilliant books, including The Diversity Bonus and The Difference, and he defines diversity in the following way. Diversity is talent. It's a mathematical fact and it's an empirical fact. Diversity is a form of ability. Diversity produces a bonus, in simple terms, one plus one can equal three, but only if the two ones are different. That's the bonus. And that's also, um, for the mathematicians amongst you, including myself, uh, the equation that I referred to earlier, and the official mathematical term for it is the diversity protective theorem. Uh, and if you look up some of Professor Page's work, um, there's more information about that equation. Professor Page also argues that in complex tasks, you need excellence, and excellence requires cognitive diversity, that diversity trumps ability, that teams beat individuals, and diverse teams trump homogenous teams. And I think this understanding is so fundamental to team decision making in our economies as a whole. And I'm really keen that we understand the value of diversity from this perspective, rather than it simply being the right thing to do, which I absolutely agree it is, but there's so much more to diversity and inclusion than it being the right thing to do. Um, so the UK has adopted a target-driven approach to address imbalances and identity diversity, such as gender and ethnicity, and the largest 350 companies listed on the stock market, on the UK stock market. I will use a focus primarily on board gender diversity as there have been, as I said, 10 years of efforts in the UK to address the gender imbalance at the very top of the largest listed companies on the UK stock market. But by focusing on women on boards and gender diversity, this should not be taken as an indication that I'm precluding or that I am not interested in other types of diversity characteristics. However, the last decade of sustained efforts are worth analysing. And the more data and the more evidence and the more information we can look at, and the more that it emerges over time, the more we can understand the impact of women on boards in UK companies. And we can also see if there is read across to other types of group, to, to other types of marginalised groups. So as can be seen from this slide, 
there has been progress in terms of the representation of women on boards in the top 350 UK companies listed on our stock market. This should be celebrated and we've moved from 9.5% female representation in 2011 to 33.8% at the end of last year. However, there are many gaps, including the lack of women of colour on boards and how there is not significant female representation amongst CEOs, CFOs and board chairs. And there also remain a high number of all-male executive committees. Progress continues on the target-based approach to improving gender representation, and a similar approach has been adopted to increase ethnic diversity at board level through the recommendations of the UK government-backed Parker Review, which was introduced in 2017 and which gives our largest 350 companies four years to appoint a board director from a Black, Asian or ethnically diverse background. So 2021 is a critical year for the Parker review targets as well. But to achieve cognitive diversity, there needs to be a move beyond meeting targets to a focus on the qualitative aspects and addressing imbalances and identity diversity, be that gender, race, ethnicity, disability or sexuality, by bringing a diversity of lived experiences. In addition, the pandemic is forcing a debate about the changing collective skill set of a board, including having health professionals and directors who can oversee the transition to a low carbon economy, and directors with experience in ESG issues and an engagement with a range of stakeholders. Interestingly, a recent survey of directors at the largest 100 US companies indicated that only 0.2% of the total sample of 1,188 directors had specific climate ex expertise and just 6% had broader environmental expertise. Getting better expertise onto boards can be facilitated by diversity and by seeking to recruit from a, from a much wider pool of talent. A report from December 2020 from Bloomberg and the Sasokawa Peace Foundation studied more than 11,700 companies globally and found that a critical mass of 30% women on the board makes a key difference to climate governance and innovation. This is interesting because as much as it's only one report, here you have two systemic risks, gender inequality and climate change, where solving one amplifies how we solve the other. And it works the opposite way too. If we leave women and other marginalised groups out of solutions, we will get solutions that are suboptimal. The IBE report explores the various proof points for diversity and the other ways we measure the impact of women on boards, including from a governance and risk perspective. The traditional business case for diversity is examined, including evidence of corporate outperformance when adding women or members of any underrepresented group to boards and executive teams. Evidence from McKinsey, Credit Suisse and others is considered in this regard, as well as the challenges of causation and correlation. The unethical connotations of seeking to link diversity to the bottom line are also explored. From the work of the late Professor Catherine Phillips, an American business theorist and advocate for workplace diversity, it is clear that linking improved diversity to enhancing the bottom line has unethical dimensions to it, because it reinforces the idea that some people belong and others have to prove that they do. Professor Phillips argued that the proof points sought for diversity have power in them 
and often serve to reinforce the status quo. Therefore, whilst the business case for diversity remains strong and is now generally accepted, we should ask whether it is time to move the focus away from the business case, particularly in the traditional sense of enhancing company performance. I think the drive to get more gender balance into corporate boardrooms is not just about putting a few more women onto boards. It's about harnessing the value and the difference that different perspectives bring. There is so much interesting research about how board governance systems will improve if you have more female directors. So the IBE explores this and other ways in which we can understand the impact of increased gender diversity at board level, including academic research examining improvements to board governance, risk oversight, and the sustainability profile of the company. For example, the report examines the important concept of substantive gender diversity, which is explored in academic research by Professor Yaron Nilly at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School, which argues that it's not just about having female, more female directors on boards, it is also about the roles they take and the clout they have. So I'm interested in the impact on the bottom line, and I'm interested in improving governance systems, as well as diversity and inclusion within the cultural piece of corporates as well. We have to couch this in language that leaders can understand. So we should ask, what are you giving up? What female talent are you missing out on if you're not utilising female employees to the best of their ability? These questions that investors these are questions that investors should be asking the CEOs and board chairs of the companies they invest in. As I have said, diversity in companies is an area that many investors are increasingly focusing on. And the 10 recommendations in the IBE report also present a framework for engagement by investors in understanding how diversity is leveraged, leveraged as a strategic imperative for companies and how the risk of groupthink is managed and the benefits of diversity are harnessed in the boardroom. So as I have said, these two issues of investment stewardship and diversity are fundamental to the social utility of finance and how finance demonstrates that social utility. But finance itself is very challenged on diversity. And this slide sets out some of the key statistics in finance and in business more generally as to where we are with respect to diversity. I will focus on a few. So the lack of female portfolio managers. So portfolio managers are the investment managers that run investment portfolios on behalf of end savers and investors. And a report by CityWire from last year indicates that we will have to wait 200 years for gender parity amongst people who run money for savers and investors. I don't have 200 years to wait. Look at the lack of black professionals amongst investment portfolio managers and in leadership positions at the largest 100 companies in the UK stock market. You may have heard last week about data from Green Park, which found that there was no black executives amongst the CEOs, the C chief financial officers, and the board chairs of the largest 100 companies in the UK stock market. And then look at the gender pensions gap, which in the UK is set at 40.3%. If we want women to invest more in stock markets and invest for their futures, we need a finance industry that looks like them. And also look at the challenges that female founders face, where less than one penny in every pound of UK venture capital funding is going to all female founder teams. 
if financial services wants to better represent the people it ultimately serves, then it needs to own its challenges on diversity and come up with solutions. And we are already seeing this through the excellent work of organisations such as the Diversity Project, Women in Banking and Finance, my own network, the 100% Club, and through initiatives such as 100 Black Interns, and there are many more. So diversity is a challenge to entrench status quos that will sometimes resist their dismantling, but improving corporate cultures to the benefit of all stakeholders requires boards to have the courage to ask themselves searching questions and face into the consequences of their answers. Underrepresentation at board level on gender, ethnicity and other aspects of identity diversity is part of a wider framework of systemic inequalities that are risks to the economy and to society. Leaders and their boards should recognise the role that all companies have in being part of the solution. They should encourage and lead conversations on difficult and complicated issues related to power, status quo, representation, fairness, meritocracy, equality, opportunity, and the inherent barriers faced by certain groups within companies and wider society. It is clear that the opportunity to instill long-term and sustainable change can only be realised and delivered by a diverse board. And finance has a powerful and important role to play in this, both as stewards of capital and how it becomes a more diverse and simultaneously more trusted sector in demonstrating better its own social license to operate. As we continue the drive for more gender diversity, increase efforts to address the slow pace of change on ethnic representation on boards and think about LGBT plus equality, disability, neurodiversity and social mobility, we need the entire ecosystem around boards, companies, investors, and the finance sector and society more generally to contribute and be part of the solution. Systemic change requires all of us to act individually and collectively. The opportunity is enormous and there is still much to do. And the IBE report is freely available for download and go to the Institute of Business Ethics website at www www.ibe.org.uk. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big Picture podcast series. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Subscribe to never miss an episode. 